Before we get started, um, I just want to ask everyone who's listening, if you find the podcast or this episode helpful, please share, so like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you're listening. Uh, leave a review if you can. It really helps to get the podcast out to whoever it can help. And um, the easiest way for you guys to help me get more listeners is uh to share it with people that you think it'll help. So um, I really appreciate it. And um, on to the show. This is the Cherished You Podcast. I am your host, Rama. Okay, welcome back, guys. Um, So this next um, series of episodes is really something I've been working toward talking about. I've mentioned it in bits and pieces before, but um, I'm getting to a point now in both my nervous system regulation and just the amount of time that I've had to really um, edify myself on what I have been through to be able to talk about it in a way that is, I hope, um, educational and informative, but also healing for anybody else who might be going through this and thinks that they're all alone in the world. literally impossible and in our human experience we all have threads that connect us as to how what we go through but um i um definitely went into creating this podcast with the mindset that i needed to get some things out of the way first before i went into talking about my experience and how i got here Um, half of that was for um, a getting myself familiar with how to record and make a podcast from scratch by myself because I'm a one-person team. And the other one was um, getting the right language and being able to showcase my experience in a way that hopefully will make sense because it's really easy to dismiss having a narcissistic parent, but particularly a narcissistic mother. It's really easy for people to dismiss that as it can't have been that bad. Like you're over, you're overly sensitive to what your mother did to you. Um, and that's not the case. Um, it's not, while I can understand, and I've tried to make sure that I've said this in previous episodes, while I can understand how my mother got to the point where she was, where she is in her life, in her personality type, um, to be the kind of mother that she was to me, and is, by the way, to her other children as well. I am not alone in this. Um, but for me, having been, having having had the role in this entire situation the way that I do as being the the scapegoat being the quote-unquote whistleblower or um, just being 
being the cycle breaker and seeing the abuse for what it was and calling it out in a given the context of the world we live in the cultural dynamics at work both uh, white culture and desi culture both kind of collide in these kind of situations and then my own what i believe to be just um kind of my my role in all of this because i i don't think that given and this will make more sense as i explain as i go through these next few episodes but really that my my role in all of this i was always more aware than i than i wanted to be about what was going on and it's taken years and years and years of learning for me to have language to be to be able to clearly explain what it is that i knew as a child and having a strong intuition that was constantly undermined by my mother um is something that i am still working on correcting i'm still working on making sure that i check in with myself first get myself get get complete validation from myself first before i start um questioning myself based on what other people are seeing because my experience is my experience i know my experience the best and i will not be gaslit out of my reaction to my experience because other people do not understand or refuse to acknowledge that maybe they have been through something similar because it shatters their world view so what these next few episodes are going to be about is me living in the cult of my mother my mother is a malignant narcissist as i've mentioned before um there are certain characteristics that go with being a narcissist um and a malignant narcissist is everything dialed up to a million so um we have all in some way shape or form come across a narcissist if you live in the world um our the best version of the most prototypical version of a malignant narcissist is actually Donald Trump and my mother is very very closely linked to him as far as personality is concerned um so if you can imagine um that is my baseline that i'm going to go with because the thing um and this again i'll i'll go into more detail on this in future episodes because the story is very long it will be a few episodes it will be heavy so i am um going to give another content warning here um there's i'm going to be talking about abuse i'm going to be talking about malignant narcissism and narcissism in general um i'm going to be um going into uh emotional neglect and emotional abuse and psychological abuse all of these things can be triggering if you are either still in this and are not ready to deal with it yet if you are just coming out of some a situation something similar to this and you have not gotten to the point yet where you can handle hearing other people's stories um i'm going to give that as a warning because i think it's important to understand that um just because somebody has understands what you went through doesn't mean you want to be understood just yet so my i after a lot of consumption of material around cults i am finally able to say clearly that i was born into a family cult um 
I've been doing a lot of, I've, I've always been very interested in cults because I've always seen the one common thread in every cult is that there is a malignant narcissist at the head of it. And what I, what I also knew is that I was attracted to watching this malignant narcissist control all of these people and that person always, you know, triggered in my mind my mother because my mother is also a malignant narcissist. What I didn't understand at the time that I have understood over this past year and a half, two years, is that the reason I was always um, so interested in consuming content on cults and content is not just online content. I'm talking about everything from the vast amount of documentaries that we have available to us even before this year in 2023. There's already been, I think I've already watched like 18 documentaries that I did not watch before on cults. Um, but I have always been interested in cults and particularly in the last couple of years, it's kind of been ratcheted up mainly because there has been an, an, an immense increase in cult content but also because I was seeing my family reflected back to me in these cults and I couldn't quite figure out why. Um, what I have been able to put together now, having done a lot more research, is that um, families can be cults too especially when you have a um, severely narcissistic or in my case a malignant narcissist as a parent. Um, my mother is the leader of our family. Of my family growing up, my mother was the leader. While my dad was a quote-unquote breadwinner, um, my parents have um, used to run their own businesses. So when you looked at the paperwork for the business, while my dad was doing the day-to-day, -day, going in there, taking care of the books, handling them, all that stuff, um, <clears throat> my mother owned the majority of the companies that my dad was running. So even in the respect that my, um, my dad may have looked like the breadwinner to the outside world, in reality, um, my mother owned the businesses, more, um, more, a higher percentage of the business. She was a 51% or my dad was 49%, and that's how it kind of worked out. Um, that was done on purpose. My mother is very um, cognizant of making sure she keeps her power um, insulated from being taken. And these, um, this is, um, by the time she got around to having her own family, you know, being married, having kids, um, she was already very well versed in being a cult leader. Um, my, I've, and to understand my mother, um, which is um, a lot of what I have, what I spent, not these, not since the years that I've gone no contact with my family, but the years before that, in order for me to be able to leave, I had to understand why my mom was the way that she was. And that's why I actually have a few episodes in my podcast, um, some previous episodes, where I do talk about how a narcissist comes to be. Um, I think it's important for some people to know that. I don't think it applies to everybody, but for me, I'm one of those people, like I like to know where this started because I'm a root cause kind of person. And I, I understand that I, we may never get to a point overall and maybe in my lifetime where narcissism won't exist because there's too many uh, systems at play that create a narcissist. But I... I felt it necessary to understand how my mother became my mother, like how her personality formed in order to A, not be, not internalize all of her toxic shame. Um, I, I understand that my mother 
has done and will continue to do from some very, very bad things. I also know that her early childhood was filled with trauma and abuse. And I can't help but see that those two things are connected. Now, is it my fault? Absolutely not. I wasn't alive then. I wasn't involved then. Um, there were people and situations around her that put her in the situation she was in. Does she have the ability to um, change herself if she so chose? I believe she does. To a certain degree, I believe she does. I also understand having you know, learned psychology to the degree that I have both through school and um, on my own because it's what I am interested in, um, that there is only so much a person can do if their internal livelihood depends on them upholding the the appear their personality the way that it is like I don't know if my mother could survive deconstructing her narcissism I don't think she would survive it I think it would literally cause her to have a heart attack and die um, I think that's how deeply embedded it is in, in her maybe there might have been a time at some point in her life where she could have and I think that was probably very very early on way before I was born um, where that would have been the case but I think now at this stage in her life, it is too late for her. That does not mean that she doesn't hurt people now. That does not excuse any of her behavior. Um, it, it doesn't excuse my experience of having been abused by her and the people are, are surrounding her um, in order to maintain her sense of self. But like I said, um, like before I went off on that tangent, um, my mother's practice at being a cult leader started way before I was born. Her mother, um, by all accounts, and this I've um, tried to verify from other sources outside of my mom, but my, um, my mom's mother was uh, killed when she was 19 years old. And my mother was two or three at the time. Uh, this is back in a day where uh, girls were married off very quickly and um, they were not always married off into the best of situations. By all accounts that I have been able to find out from um, extended family, my grandmother was abused both in her family of origin, um, so by my great-grandmother and, um, and, and by her husband and their family as well, uh, my mother's father. She was also divorced. So being divorced in, and we're talking about in the early, like late 1950s, early 1960s in Pakistan, um, she was divorced and she was remarried and all of this happened before she was 20 years old. Um, when she was killed, um, it seems to be true. And I'm saying all this because a lot of this um, I have heard from my mother. Like I said, I've tried to verify some portions of this with other family members. The issue is that these family members are also very much under the thumb of my mom. So they tend to um, reiterate her point of view. So I'm not 100% sure that what happened to my mother, um, what happened to my grandmother, the way that it's been recounted to me is true. 
Now, I'm going to get a little woo over here because I have, um, I have done some self-hypnosis and some self-past life regressions. And what has come through for me that there is a high likelihood that my grandmother was killed by her mother. Um, I, again, I cannot verify this. There is nobody that I, uh, that is actually alive anymore to be able to give me a, um, a clear accounting of this. I, according to my mother, she was killed by her second husband. There is some verification around the circumstances of her death, of my great, of my, of my grandmother's death, um, that there is some truth to some of the surrounding situations, but as to who finally killed her there, I could, I have not been able to get a clear answer from anyone outside of my mom. I do not always trust, um, I cannot always trust my mother's recounting of situations because there is this creation of her myth. The myth of my mother is created around these stories. Like, oh, look at all this stuff I went through and now, like, that is why I am the way that I am. There, she very much has the victim mentality kind of really um really locked in as as a narcissist she's a very she very much does play up the victim portion of her narcissism a lot for sympathy um she that is one of the primary ways she likes to get her supply and um that the the issue is that i have not been able to confirm anything outside of the fact that my grandmother died when she was 19. Um, i have not been able to confirm that she was in fact pregnant at the time my mother says that she was nine months pregnant and um, when she died um, she was shot and which killed um, you know the baby and my grandmother i don't know if that's true um, i do know that the only thing i know for sure is that my mother was killed when she was 19 how she died is not very clear but like i said all of these stories that i heard from my mom and then you know I, at the time i when my mother first told me these stories i was 16 and i when i first when she first told me this i was 16 and i had already um been you know been in a, in a, in a phase of questioning my mother for a good chunk of time at that point. Like I remember that my first time I really questioned my mom was eight, but I really started doing it around when I was 10 and each year would, there would be some more things that I just felt didn't add up. And so when she told me these stories there, um, I do remember thinking, I wonder why she's telling me this now. Um, age appropriate was not something my mother really understood or cared about, honestly. Um, she had put a lot of um, responsibilities on me for ages that I don't think were even looking back at it now, I don't think it was appropriate for me to have to do all that. Um, Some examples are like having, I was in high school and I was having to make um, breakfast uh, for my siblings and myself and my mother's um, tea because she didn't drink coffee, she drank tea in the morning and I had to get all of that done before I went to school. Um, and this is, I used to have, my first class was at 7 a.m. So I would have to get up at six to make sure that all this got done. On top of that was also the religious expectations she had put on us. So we, at different points in my, um, in my, 
high school years, um, I had, we used to have a teacher who came in to teach us in the morning before we went to school. Um, so that was something we had to do before we went to school and learn more. Um, I had to pray in the morning before I could go to school. And I, um, so there were all of these things that, I, I mean, I understand teaching kids about religion and whatever, and that kind of indoctrination kind of happens for a lot of people across the board in differing ways. Um, but it was just, I was always, um, always felt like I had a lot to do um, for that, and I never really had time to relax. And that also is indicative of a cult. There is no time to sit around and do nothing, to just, to just be. Um, I remember that I used to, um, I used to read a lot as a kid and I was, you know, when it, when it was time for bed, we were told to put our books away and everything, but I remember that I would still want to read and I didn't ever had that much time to read. So I would, um, I would get up and read from like, like we, 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 we weren't allowed to close our doors. Our bedroom doors were not allowed to be closed. So, and, but I couldn't have a lamp on or a light on because then they would know that I was awake. So if they were, if my parents were still awake, but we, they had put us to bed and I still wanted to read, um, I would sit by the crack in the door on, on, on the bedroom side, but in the shadows, trying to read the rest of the book that I wanted to finish, whether you know, it was a chapter or whatever was going on, because that was the only real way to um, kind of do something that I wanted to do that wasn't forced upon me um, that I you know that that I felt good doing um, so that kind of I, so when I go back to thinking about the myth of my mother um, the stories around how her mother died and then how she was raised by her grandmother my great-grandmother um, are a, I have to take them with a grain of salt. B, um, I also understand that there was some heavy abuse because it's seen throughout um, my my grandmother's siblings. So she had three brothers, and there is a lot of, um, before they died, I had noticed a lot of trauma in them. One of them was an alcoholic. One had moved away with his wife to a completely different city, never came to see his mom or anybody else that were in the city that they were all born and raised in. And that there was a whole bunch of stories around that too. The other brother lived right, you know, you know, down a block in, you know, in, in like in the lower part of this, of this village and there was issues with him too and his wife and their kids and there was always all this drama and so all of that kind of um, messiness really did come from the fact um, that I'm uh, very sure that my great-grandmother was abusive as well um, again she raised my mother so my mother is also a testament to that you know having a child that had um, alcohol uh, you know alcohol issues and you know having a kid that moved away those are all indications and you know not having a healthy relationship with your family of origin can usually show what the, um, the people in charge of those families really kind of put those people through and all of this to say that my mother used all of these things and then you know she had and you know some of this stuff again has been corroborated by other people but unfortunately these people are also under the spell of them of my mother they do a participate in her cult even if it's not in her immediate family so it's really hard for me to know for sure what's true and what's not 
but you know, there's or the story of how she was also put in a position at a young age to raise her cousins, the 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 kids of her aunts and uncles, um, of, of her of her uncles, because her mother was no longer around. And they needed somebody to take care of the kid, and she was put into that position. Um, I think that that. I think, again, I kind of take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. She may have been hand, handed that responsibility because it was common in those days, but also um, did she relish that opportunity to be able to exert her will on younger bodies that were not able to... Um, that that um, that were not able to revolt or have their own because she was in a position of power by proxy because, you know, she was closer to to the matriarch of that family, which would be my great grandmother at this point, versus the other members of the family. Um, all of this is something that is still used to this day um, to kind of build up the the myth of my mother's upbringing and her being and how she's so great and why she's the greatest person in the world. Now, I do know that when it was in my early 20s, when some of these cousins, some of my mother's cousins, so my, we consider them my aunts and uncles, they kind of started to break away and speak up for themselves against my mom. You know, they moved out of the house um, that my mother uh, lived in when she was growing up. They had been living in that house, but um, in, in recent years, within the last 10, 15 years, they moved out of there. They kind of went and did their own thing. And I remember when all this happened, my mother was like, oh, they'll never survive without my house. They'll never survive without my money. They'll never survive without me. And that is also around the same time that I was getting some more formal education around narcissism. So I was able to see her. Again, these are things that I had intuitively had seen as a child and understood that there was something not right here. You know, you're not omnipotent, you're not omniscient. You don't, um, no one person gets to control any any group of people, much less, you know, what was looking like to me, like it started off with all of her cousins and then it started off with their kids and then it was her own kids and then all of a sudden she was trying to take over my dad's side of the family as I was growing up and trying to exert her will on them and they wouldn't let my dad's family would really kind of push back up against it, um, and that used to irritate her. Uh, and it used to get her really, really pissed and where my dad would side with his family because they were trying to save him from her domineering, her, her domination of him. And looking back on it now, I can see that for a narcissist to have that kind of uprising from people who weren't indoctrinated into her myth and into her cult, that it would upset her if they were trying to take um, the man out of her situation where she also lives with this also deeply internalized misogyny that her value as a woman exists as so long as she is married. So long as she has a man, even though she is the more dominant personality, she does not have value unless she is um, married to a man. So she needs to have that man, um, you know, as like the, um, the face of, of her family, even though she is the dominant reason why that family um, exists in, the, in its iteration the way that it does. I, I've said this, you know, I, I, I know I've said it a few times even today, but I, um, I don't know, I, I sometimes go back and forth as to why I had an awareness 
of my mother that she never wanted me to have. Um, there, I, I, I like, I know that as an adult, I have a disorganized attachment and that obviously comes from having um, intermittent reinforcement of my emotional needs growing up as a child. But I was always more sensitive than everybody else. I was always more vocal about my sensitivity than everybody else. Um, I always, um, I was the brunt of a lot of her toxic shame. I was the brunt of her wrath more often than anybody else. When, and even though growing up, um, early on in life, I kind of realized that if I got good grades for the most part, I wouldn't get in trouble. But I, but I then when I look back and I go through some old journals because I did start journaling pretty young as a child, but I had to hide them because she would go through my room and she would go through my belongings and look for things that were wrong. And so um, I often had it in a notebook that I took with me back and forth to school. So it looked like a school's notebook and it looked like I had my notes in it, but it was also most, it was also a journal. And, and when I go through um, those, those things and I think about everything that I was going through as a child and my good grades saved me until they didn't. And when I wasn't getting good grades, I was immediately scapegoated. I was immediately used as an example for my siblings of, look at her, don't become like her, look at what a loser she is. Um, and also all of that, like, oh my God, we're paying so much money for you to go to school and you can't even do well. All of these things I internalized for the longest time. And I, um, I could not recognize that I had my um, my own way of thinking. I I was smart in my own in my own way that didn't always correlate to tests. So um, I do again because of the trauma. I also have ADHD, and so I think differently. I process information differently, and that's not always the best way to do well on a test because t uh, usually a lot of tests, and whether they're standardized or just regular school testing, is very like rote. It's like whatever you learn, can you repeat it? And I'm more of somebody, like my brain has always just made connections. So I really, I'm not a very good memorizer. I'm, I, I understand things. And if I don't understand it, I don't know it. And that's Again, these are things I didn't realize about myself until I was already um, halfway through med school. Um, I was 25, 26 years old when I'm trying to figure out about myself and I'm still kind of carrying all of these wounds from my mom growing up where she's like, you're, not, you're only smart because of me. You're only smart because I did this for you. You're only smart because I provided you with tutoring. You're only smart because um, I helped you skip a grade. And not because I took the test, but because she was somehow responsible for the thing that I did. And so I had nothing of my own growing up. I didn't... Um, this part always kind of makes me upset because for the longest time I had no sense of anything of who I was. And the only thing that saved me out of all of this, and it's something I'm trying to reconnect to now, um, now that I've gotten 
you know, to a certain part in my, in my journey to be able to reconnect to this portion of myself. But the only thing I had that was my own was, was dance. And I wasn't allowed to do it. I wasn't allowed to take a single dance class. I wasn't allowed to do anything that had to do with dance. I could take music, but it had to be the music she wanted to. I was a really good flute player. I, wa I was only allowed to get two flute lessons in my entire lifetime. Um, I ended up going to quote unquote extra help. Extra help was this period before school started that you could go and you know, you know, it was extra help for whatever subject you wanted to go to. I would go to band to practice because that was the only way I could do it. I wasn't allowed to dance. I wasn't allowed to play sports. All of these things that I wanted to do, and these are all things, ironically, that can, would connect me to my body, that would let me live in my body. And, and I haven't even gotten to all of the body shaming that I was um, indoctrinated into as a child that I am still unraveling today. Now, understand that my mother also carries a lot of these wounds. She's never thin enough. She's never, you know, she herself is never thin enough, but she's, at least she's not as big as this person. Oh, she's never, you know, she, she's not shaped right, but she's better shaped than this person. You know, it's always kind of that. And, but I was told I was fat from when I was like three years old. And I, um, I was put onto diets after diet. I had done Herbalife before Herbalife was a thing. Um, I was on FenFen when I was like 10. Um, I did SlimFast. I did all of those things that diet culture, when you combine it with a malignant narcissist, it gets, again, ramped up to a million. And what's ironic is that when I finally did lose weight in my 20s, all of a sudden I was too thin. So there was no winning in any of this. But I was, I look back and I was like, I was a chubby kid, but I wasn't heavy. I wasn't obese by any stretch of the imagination. I'm still not obese now, even though I'm, you know, I, I'm technically at a, at a, what a larger weight, but I'm not obese. And I don't see myself clearly because of those early interactions with her where everything we did was a reflection of her and I could never be good enough. And I started becoming, I went from the golden child to the scapegoat pretty quickly early on in my life. And when I, um, and my sister went the opposite way. She saw early on how I was being treated. So when she started to gain weight, she went and lost it. So she stayed, she was pretty thin for most of her life until she got married. And, um, and I haven't really, I don't, I don't know. I haven't, have any connection with my sister in years so I don't know what she looks like now but when I left she was starting to resemble what my mother looked like she looked a lot like my mom um, her shape her size her height um, she's also closer to my mom's height I'm taller than both of them um, her face looks like my mother's um, she walks around like my mom she dresses like my mom um, so there's a, a lot of those similar and, and she is also the closest narcissist in the family outside of my mother and she uses the men in my family, and um, like my brothers, as her entourage along with her husband. So this is, um, this is the kind of thing that I kind of saw right before I left. But this all comes back down to like we, we were born into this. This is, you know, my mother's choice of this cult was early on. And we were supposed to be her loyal soldiers because she gave birth to us. And that was always held over our head. But I didn't even know that I was smart or if I was pretty or if I was attractive or if I was a good person. I didn't know I was, if I was a good person until I was into my like mid to late 20s. 
Like that's how long it took. And I am grateful because had I, in those early years, I, um, I, I've, I've been depressed and anxious for as long as I can remember. My first memory is that I have is at five, and I remember feeling depressed. I didn't have those words, but they were all the characteristics, everything I was feeling, this kind of despair, this kind of like, I don't know if I'm, like, this can't be what life is. This can't be the reason that I'm living kind of deal for, as, for since I was five. Um, I tried to, my first attempt at suicide was when I was, um, 15. My second attempt was at 19. And all of those things, like if I, I had nobody to talk to, but I was lucky in the sense that because I was good at school and I was allowed to be at school, at school I was myself. And I didn't know if I was smart and I didn't know if I knew what I was talking about, but I could be myself at school. And there were a handful of teachers that I am so grateful to for this day because they saved my life. And I don't know that had it not been for them, if I would have lived to see today. And that's an honest to God truth. And I, I say that because like I was, it was bad. Like going to school was my only highlight, but it really wasn't enough for me to get out of the bed. And, and you know, I wasn't allowed to sleep a lot anyway, but I wasn't allowed to, um, it was hard for me to want to leave, but the only reason I left was because it was safer at school for me than it was at home. And had it not been for those handful of teachers who were there for me and guided me and reinforced the, good, like the, the qualities about myself that I now hold dear, had it not been for them, I don't know if I would have lived. Because it was bad. You don't know... It's so hard to explain and really even now put words to the despair that you live with, the anguish that you live with, just knowing that your entire existence depends on whether or not this person who is supposed to be your mother, you know, you have all this mother propaganda getting hit at you at the same time and everyone's talking about how much they love their moms and their moms are like so nice and they take care and I am deathly afraid of mine. And... I don't know how to reconcile that. I don't know if I'm the one who's wrong because you're a child. You don't know. And you're being told both at home and at school, oh, it can't be that bad. But there were these couple of teachers who were able to be like, you know what, maybe it is that bad. But I will help you in the best way I know how. And they were my anchors and my life raft in a time where I, I don't know if I would have lived through high school had it not been for them. And all of this to say that it is, cults are not always giant groups that promise you big things. Cults can be a family system run by one person who's telling you this is how you have to live. And if you don't live that way, your existence is, is not valid. You don't exist if you don't do all of these things for me. And in the event that you are one of those people that has or is currently living um, in, in the cult of a malignant narcissistic parent. You are not alone. And I know like the little bits of freedom that you do get are precious and cherished, and they, as they should be, because those are gonna be the lights out of the dark tunnel that's gonna lead you out, I promise you. Because there were times when I didn't think I was gonna make it. I really don't. I, I'm still honestly surprised every day that I made it this far. So, 
Um, yes, it's um, it's emotional. This this also all the story I've been waiting to put out because I knew that it was going to bring up all this, and I know that this is going to be sharing my story and having um, having to say it out loud is both cathartic and um, exhausting, and it's so. Um, but it's needed because I don't consider myself unique. I don't consider my experience unique. I am not the only one who has gone through this. Um, but there's not a lot of people talking about what it's like to live with a narcissistic mother. And there, I mean, we know, we, I think for the most part, most people understand that a lot of narcissists are men. And we can reconcile men being narcissists. They exist in our everyday world. They're in positions of power. They're, you know, presidents and dictators and CEOs of companies. And you understand how the system reinforces men being narcissistic. But a narcissistic mother, especially considering, again, all the propaganda around what it means to be a mother. And then you are faced with understanding that your mother does not fit that mold. She plays the role real well for everybody else, but behind closed doors, your life is a completely different story that only you know of. And if you tried to tell somebody it, they wouldn't believe you. I am here to tell you that I do. I believe you. I lived it. I get it. And you are not alone. And if there's anybody who, if there's anything I can do for anyone, please leave me a message, DM me. You guys can find me at The Cherished You on all of the social media channels. But please know that you are not alone. And the whole purpose of me spending these next few episodes going through my story bit by bit is because, A, it's hard to kind of say it all in one place, like all at once. But, and it's a very long story. But um, I don't want anybody to feel the loneliness and the ostracization that I felt growing up. Thanks so much for listening to this first part. Um, next, uh, next week will be um, a little bit going into more in depth about um, my teenage years and what that was like, but, um, and what that's like living in a cult that's run by a narcissistic mother. But um, I hope, um, thanks so much for listening, I guess, and I hope this helps whoever, it, it, I hope it, it reaches whoever it's supposed to reach and it helps whoever it's supposed to help. Um, so please share share it with your friends, share it on social media, um, and check me out on all the usual channels, and the handle is at The Cherished You. Until next time, guys, thanks so much. I'll talk to you then. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Cherished You podcast. If you could please leave me a review, um, subscribe, and share. It really helps get the podcast out to those who it will help the most.